From pitch side to print to the press box above Providence Park. It's Jamie Goldberg from the Oregonian and Richard Farley from the Portland Timbers and Thorns. This is Soccer Made in Portland. On the scene, all the time. Welcome everyone to Soccer Made in Portland. Uh, I don't know, maybe maybe a more optimistic podcast in the last few weeks. Oh my god, let's uh, maybe, hope so. Let's hope so. <laughs> I mean, at least compared to the last few weeks, I, I think there are some positives to talk about from this weekend, uh, and some you know continued yeah. negatives. Yeah, it feels like it feels like what a normal MLS road game usually feels like. Unfortunately, it'd be really naive to divorce that yeah. from the context of the rest of the month. So this podcast is going to be an exercise in balance. And you know, going through the questions, you can see that a lot of fans are frustrated by the fact that we're four games into the season that Timber haven't won a game. But there are also other fans that are choosing to look at the silver linings from this weekend. And, and that feels about right. There should be some people that are frustrated. There should be other people that are looking, electing to look at the other side of life. It'll be interesting to see what the balance is 60 minutes from now. Yeah. Um, well, I will say uh, we could have, but depend- it seems like, recorded this podcast last week because our predictions were right. What? <laughs> Since were, when? They were just right. <laughs> wow, that's weird. Um, yeah, I feel, I don't know if this has ever happened where both our predictions were just right for a game, but I predicted a 2 1 loss. Uh, yeah, uh, as and, you do, <laughs> as I seem to do this year, um, and and you predicted that Abobasi would get a goal. So, um, I mean, they were pretty much chalk predictions—a yeah, two-one road yeah. loss—and me predicting the team striker sure. would score. But <laughs> this is the first time this year we've really been this close to correct. So yeah. I think uh, I think it is noteworthy <laughs> that even though we predicted the chalk, the chalk ended up coming through. Uh, but I think the thing to talk about, Jamie, is what we took from the performance, and let's. Let's go to David's questions first. David asks, how should we feel about the game? Will we look back and see this as a turning point or not? Turning point feels strong, but there is there is a little sentiment in there that we have to talk about, whether we feel like the Timbers took a meaningful step forward in their 2-1 loss on Sunday. Yeah, I mean, I think there are some similarities in, in sort of that step forward to Dallas last year, and I do think we sort of looked back at that and said it was a turning point. Um, when the Timbers went on the road and got a draw in Dallas and then tried to stay really compact and um, made sure that the defensive problems were, were sort of what they were solving first and were able to get a result there. Obviously, they get a result there. They don't get a result at the Galaxy, and I think there are still some defensive problems that we will talk about coming out of that game. But it was a better performance, and if you know, if the Timbers go on a 15-game unbeaten streak again, I, I don't necessarily, I definitely don't think that's going to happen, especially with them on the road. Um, but, if, but if the Timbers start stringing together some results and start playing better and we, we stop seeing sort of these collapses they've had um, again in, in these games against Cincinnati and LAFC, then yeah, maybe we look at this as a turning point. It, it's way too early for me to say that. But I, I think that I... I have negatives and positives coming out of this game. I'm trying to look at it a little bit as the glass half full because there were enough positives that you could tell that this Timbers team looked different than they had looked the past two weeks. People should have negatives about this. It was a 2-1 loss against a Galaxy team. Definitely. Yeah, I don't think the Galaxy are so exceptionally more talented. I don't think they are more talented. I don't think they're exceptionally better than the Timbers. I don't think they've proven anything to make people think that it's so impossible that the Timbers could go into Dignity Health Center and get a win. (laughs) I think the way the teams played on Sunday, the Timbers very well could have won that game, although there are obvious reasons why they didn't. I think 
they have reason to be happy with that performance. But at the same time, we have to remember that this team came into this season with higher standards. And in terms of the team's progression from the down moments at Bank of California Stadium and last week, uh, two weeks ago at FC Cincinnati, this was obviously a very big step forward. I mean, just to use their language, they were concerned about how the team would collapse in moments, how one second half goal would become two, how they would lose focus. There was none of that on Sunday. Uh, The team played a very measured control performance. Obviously, they switched formations in doing that, but I thought even going forward in an attack, they looked... They looked better, or at least they looked more consistent than they had since since Colorado. Were they, you know, their full selves? Not really, but I don't think that they were so unbelievably uninspiring going forward either. I mean, they generated a number of chances. I think it was a obvious step forward, but not a step forward that was beyond criticism. Oh, yeah. And I think it matters where they go from here in terms of seeing where it's at, because the result still isn't there. This is three losses in a row. Um you, you can't be happy with three losses in a row. I, I think that only actually happened once in the entire Caleb Porter era. Hmm. Um, so Some people would happened. say it never happened, in fact, but in fact it did. <laughs> yeah, um, but I think that, you know, obviously they had a four-game losing streak last year. They, they've had some losing streaks, but um, three games in a row losing, that's not good. No. Uh, and so that if you just want to look at the results, that I, I think that makes it seem like it's a real problem here. I, I think they took steps forward. Um and we'll sort of see where they go from here. Yeah, I think you summarized the same feeling I had coming to this recording. You, know, you, you want to be balanced. You want to try to find some positives. But this was undeniably a negative result, even though it was a positive progression. I don't want to sit here the whole podcast kind of going back and forth saying, oh, bad things, but good, or good things, but bad. Look, my no matter what I end up saying for the rest of this podcast, my bottom line is this was a positive step. It was a positive step, though, relative to where the team was, and the team still has to get better. So I might get a little bit more negative as the podcast goes on. Maybe with some questions, I'll get a little bit more positive. But my bottom line is this is still a slight negative kind of wrapped in a positive. Yeah. Um, So let's get into some of the specifics so we don't keep debating, I guess, just the feeling coming out of this game. You mentioned the Timber switch formation, so let's start there. They they go with essentially a 5-3-2. we had a few questions about that, uh, but I, I guess for, from your perspective, I mean, what did you think of the formation? Do you think it helped? Oh, undeniably. But then again, I was biased coming into this. It's been three weeks where I've been saying they need to have a third midfielder. I would have gone to three central defenders, too, just to kind of shore up the defense and start building back up from there. We saw it work last year. We know that the team has depth in central defense. A lot of people have rightfully been criticizing individual performances, but they have starters back there to make a three central defense formation make sense for them so when I knew the team was going to this formation I was really excited about it because I knew at a minimum it was going to change the team's course I think what I was particularly uh, encouraged by was the fact that they were still able to generate chances probably not the number of chances that maybe they would want when their attack is clicking but they generated more chances than they did against Cincinnati and although they didn't generate as many chances as they did against uh you know LAFC that was a very wide open game until LAFC started to blow it open so they sacrificed an element of ambition they sacrificed an element of attacking verb for a little bit more control over the game and I think it paid off now what's probably more important is what did you think about the change (laughs) I mean from the attacking side I I think I disagree with you slightly especially in the second half I didn't think they generated much of anything I I think they only took maybe three shots in, in the second half they they had 
potentially a few other opportunities that they weren't able to turn to shots. But I felt like the attack looked better in the first half overall in terms of being looking like they were going to generate opportunities. Um, I think defensively, I think a formation change had to happen. Uh, it clearly had to happen after conceding 10 goals in three games, and it was the obvious choice to be more defensive and sort of protect that back line a little bit better. So I, I think it absolutely helped defensively. I don't, I, I don't think they gave the Galaxy too many really dangerous chances from open play. Um, obviously, they, they score on two penalty kicks, but, but even Zlatan Ibrahimovic, I, I mean, he was called offside a number of times. I think that speaks to, somewhat to the organization of the Timbers back line and, and be able to um, maintain that line. And uh, I, I think they did a decent job at limiting his chances from open play in terms of the dangerous opportunities that he actually took. I, I, I think he had two that I can remember that were pretty dangerous shots, one really out of nowhere and, and one, one that, uh, you know, could have potentially been a goal with yeah. a better pass. But um, I, I think you have to be pretty happy about the, at least how much the defense in the new formation um, compared to the previous weeks, how well they did comparatively. With the attack, I, I think the formation, you, you were going to see some sacrifice in the attack. And, and I, I think I was happy. I was surprised. I guess pleasantly happy with some of the opportunities they would to create in the first half. I, I just didn't see all that much in the attack in the second half. I guess I, I would agree with that. I still think it's a step forward from what we saw in Cincinnati. Granted, <laughs> Cincinnati, I mean, Cincinnati getting that early goal, playing very conservatively, that inhibited Portland's ability to generate chances. But the way that they attacked the space behind Los Angeles's defensive line in the first half, I thought was incredibly encouraging. Maybe credit to the Galaxy in the second half, they just adjusted. Giovanni Savarese talked a little bit about how the midfield for the Galaxy had to change what they were doing. And... I mean, the Galaxy are a tougher opponent than, than uh, Cincinnati is going to be. So the fact that they were able to generate more chances against the LA Galaxy than they did Cincinnati, that they were able to have uh, a really good spell in the first half. It wasn't an overbearing spell or anything, but they were able to consistently get behind LA's defense. I, I consider that a, a step forward. The fact that that was coupled with a huge step forward defensively, and maybe we can debate that because I know a lot of people are talking about the fact that the team still made mistakes. They gave up multiple goals. But in terms of the overall quality of the performance, the execution, how the team kind of in terms of its process performed, I thought this was almost night and day. You don't want to give up those penalty kicks, but you feel so much differently going into the game next week against San Jose than you did coming into this week's game in Los Angeles. Yeah, I mean, it it absolutely is night and day. I, th- I think the, the question there is, uh, in in a, in a different circumstance, if this if they had opened the season with this game, what would we be saying because of the expectations we had mm-hmm. for this team opening the season? I think there would be a lot. Maybe um, it, it would be harder to see the positives in the way we're seeing them. But yes, yeah. I mean, I think you have to feel much better about going into San Jose compared to how you would have felt to a game ago with how they were playing. Absolutely. Uh, let's go to Ben's question. It has a little bit to do with the formation change because Bill Tuiloma was such a big part sitting in the middle of that defense, the organizing presence that Jamie alluded to that led to four offside calls in the first half and really blunted what LA was trying to do early on. Ben asked, has Tui Loma locked in a starting spot? Yes. In yes? my opinion, yes. yes. Uh, I mean, I, I can't see Saresi taking it out of the lineup right now. I, I think uh, Saresi said last week when, when we were talking about the lack of communication, the lack of organization on the back line, he immediately pointed to Tui Loma as a, when in central midfield at the time in Cincinnati as a player that he felt like was bringing that vocal presence. And, and maybe that's something he was able to bring um, to the defense and, and sort of being in the center there in, in that formation. Obviously, you, you can't 
we don't know exactly what's being said on the field. Um, but outside of that, I, I think he's just played really well. And, and I, I think I don't feel the same way necessarily about Dielna and, and Cascante, at least with the consistency. And I, I, given how Tui Loma's played, the idea of seeing Tui Loma next to Larry Smabiala if they go back to a four-back, I feel pretty good with that. I agree. I think the bigger question is whether Billy Tuiloma is going to be a midfielder or a central defender or if he's either merely going to be one of those things. Is he going to be somebody who's going to be needed in midfield one week and then in defense the next week? Obviously, that'll probably depend on how his teammates in those spots perform. But Billy Tuiloma has been one of the better players over the last two weeks. And after three weeks of us continuously saying, it's just Charon Blanco, it's just Charon Blanco, somebody else is going to have to step up. Billy Tuiloma has stepped up. And I think that saying somebody has a lock on a starting spot is weird because I don't, I mean, it's just weird for us to say that because Bill Tuiloma has only started two games this year. He's never been a consistent starter for this team. But if Bill Tuiloma wasn't in the starting 11 this weekend in San Jose, I'd be asking questions. Yeah. Uh, so let's, let's move forward in the game a little bit. Again, Portland gives up the first goal this year. For the third time this year, they responded to that. Uh, second time in Los Angeles that they responded just before halftime. This with what was probably their best goal of the season. Um, let's, let's just ask a question. How important was that goal for a club, um, particularly you know after it had struggled so much in the previous two games? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that the, the Timbers had responded at times after conceding, but I, I think that... And maybe this is the difference of first and second halves in the previous games, but I think that they had also conceded goals in quick succession in both Cincinnati and LAFC. And both of those had come in the second half, so maybe that's a little bit different. But I, I think having that sort of response um, is something that's really good to see. And it, it just, I don't know, it, it felt some sort of different. They definitely yeah. felt like they were in this game. It was a team goal. It wasn't sort of one player making the most of an opportunity. Um it just sort of felt like that sort of response and the mentality there. And especially since I think even if maybe they had been able to respond in previous games, um, especially since the, the, the mentality of knowing you've conceded 10 goals in three games, it would have been really easy there, I think, to collapse and, and sort of that allow the quick succession goal to happen right there. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead, they... Like you said, best goal of the season so far, really good goal. It's going to be uh, hard to top that one, uh, at least anytime soon. Um, I, I think that was a really big moment for them. I think the nature of the goal matters too. Anytime a team scores a goal and can come back, it's going to feel like, all right, we, we fought back, we made it happen, no matter how, no matter which way we got ourselves back into it. But we think about the equalizing goals that the team has had in previous games. Jeremy Abobasi, valiant effort taking a boot to the face against LAFC, but it was off a set piece. Diego Valeri having his penalty kick saved and then converting the rebound yeah. in Colorado. These weren't great team goals. They weren't from open play. Uh, this was a goal that you would design on the pl- on the training ground. And the fact that the Galaxy let that happen says a little bit something yeah. to their defensive effort. But it was... It was an execution goal. It wasn't an individual play. It wasn't any kind of luck. It wasn't executing on a corner kick. It was a lot of people doing a lot of things to come up with a team goal. And those are the kind of things that not only give you confidence, but make you realize when you're down a goal, you can still play within your game and get back into these games. And so I think that was important. I also think those moments after the second goal in the second half were important too. Because having seen what happened with LA in LA against FC, uh, FC Cincinnati, in those first two minutes after the second penalty kick goal, 
I was ready for the team to replicate their performance that they had had their previous trips to LA against FC Cincinnati. And there definitely was some momentum there for the Galaxy, but the Timbers pretty quickly rode that out. And I think in some ways that was almost as important as the goal because you knew during those moments they had to be thinking about what happened in Cincinnati. They had to be thinking about what happened before. You don't talk about being bad in moments so much and not think about that when that moment arrives. So I think it was a, a very good sign that they weathered that. So the other the other question we got sort of related to that goal uh, from Jared is should Davi Guzman be given more freedom to run to the final third because he, he was a huge part of that goal. Two of the passes come from him, a give and go with Diego Valeria, and then he passes it across. He gets the assist to Bobasi. Yeah, I think first, you know, Davi Guzman is somebody that's been criticized a lot, and I, he's been criticized on this show, particularly after the LAFC game. And anytime I criticize somebody, uh, I, I mean, I always do it with a lot of thought because I don't like it when people criticize me. But it is part of our job is to point out to people when people aren't performing to their level of expectation. But part of that, for me, always is accompanied with a little thought in my head. I hope this guy gets another chance, and I hope he proves us wrong. Wrong's the wrong word because his performance against LAFC didn't change. But I thought Davi Guzman had a good game on Sunday. And I thought, as you described, he was a key part of that goal. Uh, the Timbers have been doing this all year, though, as far as letting one of the deep midfielders get up early in the attacking phase. It's something that they've tried to introduce to their attack this year. Davi Guzman, in particular, is somebody that has been leaving Diego Chara sitting in the middle as he's tried to get up earlier. We saw it very early in the game in Cincinnati after the team went down. They basically almost shifted formation and played two advanced midfielders. And they're basically trying to take advantage of the space that gets created. Teams paying so much attention to Diego Valeri and Sebastian Blanco. On that play, it... It worked really well because we saw as the Timbers tried to attack that right side with with down that right side with Guzman Maria Morea. They have to they have to circulate the ball back around, and once they get it back into midfield, there's Guzman in a channel as the Galaxy are pushing up. A little bit disorganized, don't account for him, and they're able to one touch through. Um, so to go back to Jared's question, should David Guzman be given more freedom to run into the final third? I don't think he should be given more freedom, but I do like this tweak that they've added to where a Davi Guzman or a couple weeks ago, Christian Paredes, is given this license to move forward uh, because I just think it's something that they are going to have to become good at if they are going to take advantage of teams want to shut down Diego Valeri and Sebastian Blanco. Yeah, and I, I think it always just has to be a balance. I, I, I think that it's sort of picking those moments and as long as Guzman's playing well it, it, it he has the opportunity to do these uh, do these kinds of things at times I, I think he's been very up and down for the last year um really at the beginning of last year I think we were criticizing Guzman's performance we have been earlier this season I, I think at the end of last season he was really important to their run and we were talking yeah, about how good he was playing and I, I think given the personnel the Timbers have right now Davi Guzman's a really important player and kind of how he's playing I, I, I think is not going to dictate how this team does but I, I think it plays an important role in, in the, the potential for the Timbers to go one way or the other I, I think he is an important player in the role that he plays and, and when we see him playing well. I, I think it's been something that we've been able to point out last year in their run and, and in this last game. It, it's something that makes a difference for this team. I think it's going to be a very important part of whether the team can actually switch back to a four-two-three-one. Yeah. Because if we're talking the current formation, look, if in San Jose, Gio Savarese started a midfield that was Bill Tuiloma, Diego Chara, and Sebastian Blanco, I'm not complaining about that. If it's Diego Chara, Sebastian Blanco, Christian Paredes, I'm not complaining about that. That's part of the reason why this formation, I think, was such a good idea is there are a lot of different combinations you can come up with there that work. 
However, in a 4-2-3-1, the only combination we've really seen work amongst the players that are in the current team is Diego Chirac yeah. and Davi Guzman. So if the future of this team is to eventually solidify the defensive principles, get back to that look that worked so well at the end of the last year, either somebody else has to step up or Davi Guzman has to stay at this level. And I don't know. I don't know how that's going to go. Jamie, let's go to a question that undoubtedly occupied every fan's mind as they were seeing what was transpiring at Dignity Health Center, the penalty kicks. Yep. First half on Claude Dielna, second half on Jeff Atanella. Let's start with the first. Your ruling, should it have been a penalty kick? Yes, penalty kick. I think Zero to ten, how confident are you that it should be a penalty kick? <laughs> I'm pretty confident it should be a penalty kick. Yeah, I'm, t- I, I'm ten. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I, guess I, I guess I should have said a number there. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, he ran... It's a, a Goldberg 100. <laughs> <laughs> Zlatan got between Dielna and the ball, and Dielna ran through Zlatan. I, I mean, yeah. that's a penalty kick. Yeah. Uh, so I, I have no problems with that. No, you just can't put your shoulder in the middle of somebody's back and try to go through a man to try to play the ball. Yeah. Just, that can't be legal in the game. Um, and I I definitely empathize with everybody who, when you see something in real time, your natural reaction is to, I don't even want to say react with emotion, but to go off of first impression. But second impression, there should have been no doubt about that. So I thought that it was a very clear and easy call. I think the big thing is that Zlatan Ibrahimovic was looking to draw penalty kicks. I Really? Ooh, interesting. I, I think I, I don't think that's deniable. Well, He's a smart forward that knows what to, to do. Looking to draw penalty kicks more than any other player? I mean, he was a player in that position. I mean, I, I think what? that, yeah, to some degree, he's looking to draw. He's just in positions to draw penalty kicks a lot. And he's given... Here, here, here's my feeling. Let me finish. Okay. Yeah, of course. I think that he's a smart player, obviously. He, he's a renowned forward. He's going to look to draw the penalty kick if the opportunity presents itself. And, and so you can look at this and say, he was trying to draw penalty kicks. He drew the first one. He drew the second one. But that doesn't mean they weren't penalty kicks. Yeah, I absolutely. And it also doesn't mean he's the only person in the world to do this. Yeah. It doesn't mean that he was wrong to do it. And it doesn't mean like he acted in a way that either was more sensational than another player or even more often than another player. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think this is part of the problem that I have a lot of times in talking to people about this is that it's always the other person's team and not your own, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we saw from Sebastian Blanco during the game on Sunday, there, there are some theatrics on the timber side too. Sebastian Blanco took exception to some things Joe Corona did yeah. and then took it out on him a little bit. Uh, and, you know, when you kick somebody... You're risking more than just a yellow card. And Sebastian Blanco got a yellow card for his, uh, I don't even know what to call it, almost a back heel a little bit to um, Joe Corona at some time. I think it was a fair call. But look, people do things in soccer games. Sometimes people have their ear flicked in soccer games. <laughs> it happened. So when we're talking about the penalty in the first half, to me it was clear. And in the second half, to be honest with you, the, you know, Zlatan drags the ball, dribbles it through the Timbers defense, gets to the left of goal. Jeff Atanella comes out, tries to claim the ball. In real time, I didn't think it was a penalty. I thought it was a gift of a call. On the replay, I had no doubt. That was a penalty. Jeff Atanella jumped into the space yeah. that Zlatan Ibrahimovic was occupying, obviously made contact. Um, yeah, the, and Zlatan got to the ball first. Absolutely. The fact that the ball was going towards the byline probably makes it even more so that Jeff Atanella shouldn't have committed that foul. I mean, I think that... Was a fair call. I don't know if it gets called all the time, but I thought it was fair. 
Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. And I, I think, yeah, it doesn't matter that it's going to the byline. That's not the role. Right. So you committed a foul in the box. Yeah. Uh, let's go to Tim's question because it ties into this. Tim asked, the defense was improved, but still mistakes cost the team two penalty kicks and the game. What led to the mistakes and how can the team increase its quality chances in attack? So two different questions there. Let's stick with the defense. Uh, Jamie, tell me if you feel differently, but what led to the mistakes was just a couple of players making decisions that ultimately proved poor ones. Yeah, individual errors. Um, so, so it doesn't necessarily speak to a collective problem that the Timbers have to address. Um, they can't continue having those types of individual errors. And, yeah. and that we've seen in the past. I mean, for many teams, that sometimes becomes a trend where you look at the Thorns last year. That became a trend to the point that it, it would became a real a, a major problem. Mm-hmm. But sometimes when you look at individual errors, those are, those are going to be easier to correct. It's not as troublesome as necessarily a collective um, defensive problem or organization or lack of leadership or, or vocal leadership or things we've been talking about. So, I mean, I'm definitely concerned because the Timbers have not been good on defense. Um, yeah. So I don't want to just like throw this aside and say it doesn't matter, but I think it could just comes down to the individual mistakes and those players need to know in those moments you have to be more careful. Yeah, I you put yourself in a coach's situation when you're breaking down film of the first foul. The Timbers were willing to concede those type of crosses all day and rely on their central defenders to win that battle. It wasn't a dangerous ball. I don't think Claude Dielna needed to take a risk in that situation. Ultimately, you have to say to Claude Dielna, much like the situation the week before when he failed to mark Kendall Waston on Cincinnati's first goal. Claude, you got to make better decisions and you got to execute better. On the second penalty, I would probably go to my defense and say, you guys put Jeff in a bad situation there. He had to make a decision, probably maybe should have made a different decision or executed differently, but you should probably prevent a guy from dribbling through you and getting to that spot and forcing a goalkeeper to make a difficult decision. I mean, Jeff Adnell's decision ultimately wasn't the right one, but nobody can fault him for that decision. I mean, he had to do something. The question is why he did he have to do something is because Zlatan (laughs) dragged the ball through, dribbled around two or three different guys that could have stopped him. And that's, I think, where you have to wonder about the execution on that one. Let's go to Tim's second question. Oh, did you have something else? Oh, no. I was Okay. Um, Tim's second question is, uh, how can the team increase its quality chances in the attack? Yeah. And I, I think that leads into, it's going to lead into a few questions we had about okay. the attack, uh, particularly in the second half, as, as I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. Um, and, and, and I mean, to answer that question, I, I think for me, it comes down to the, the formation. I, I mean, that formation is not set up to, to sort of increase the quality chances in the attack. If you're looking at the entire season as a whole, I, I think the Timbers haven't increased or haven't had enough attacking opportunities. I, I mean, they're one, I, I think there's only three or four teams they're within a group of four teams in the Western conference have the lowest number of goals so far this season. I mean, a lot of other teams have scored more (laughs) than the Timbers so far. So yeah, I think overall the Timbers are not doing a good enough job with the chances. I think it came down to more that the approach was defensive in this specific game. I disagree. I think that they had a defensive formation. You know, I wrote about this extensively today. Uh, They basically in attack uh, use pretty much the same shape that they normally do. They got Sebastian, Sebastian Blanco wide left. That's where he normally plays in attack. They got David Guzman up in the formation. They got some a wide right player. This time it was Morea. Usually it's Polo. They brought Zarek Valentin in to play a central midfielder in attack. They basically went 4-2-3-1-y. Uh, it just took them a little bit longer to get there. I think ultimately you have to look at other things. One, the fact that the team is playing on the road. Obviously teams perform worse on the road. The team just has to overcome that. And secondly, I think there are players that should be playing better beyond just the formation, beyond just the shape, beyond just the tactics. Uh, 
we talk all the time about how Sebastian Blanco seems to be this t- clearly the team's best yeah. attacking player. Jeremy Abobasi, I know a lot of fans are criticizing him, saying he should be more involved. To me, if you if you plan to have more out of Jeremy Abobasi at this point in the season, you probably weren't recognizing his career progression. He wasn't going to go from somebody who last year was just breaking into the team, becoming a starter, to somebody who's at an all-star level. I think Jeremy Abobasi is fine. Uh, the number 10 in the right wing, I think... We, you have to look and see what are those players contributing to the attack right now. And I think that's where uh, you have to wonder, okay, is this formation or is this, uh, is this style or is this performance? And to me, uh, all of those are fair questions. I just I don't think it was formation. Maybe style a little bit needs to adjust to the players' performances, but the players' performances to me are something to talk about. I'm going to bring a question up from a little bit lower in the in our mental notes here, um, just because it sort of touched on what you said. Jared asked, "How much longer is Diego Valeri issue in for the starting lineup?" And I, I think that sort of touches on a little bit of what you're saying. Yeah, I, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I personally wouldn't make a change until after this coming game. I think the question that we we should ask um, to kind of leap off of what Jared is saying. Did Diego Valeri do anything this Sunday to change the narrative? And the narrative basically is he's had a slow start to the season. And that slow start of the season is within the context of an aging player who also last year had a slow start to the season. And last year saw, we probably saw Sebastian Blanco become the team's most important attacking player. Is what we've seen through the four weeks of the season a continuation of a trend or is it a blip? I don't know the answer to that. I think both answers are justifiable. I think, though, that question needs to continue to be asked. What, what do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think Diego Valeri's been good enough to be that core player in the attack that you sort of build around, which is sort of what we've grown to expect of Diego Valeri. I, I mean, he, he, it's been a slow start. He struggled last year, too. Um, he showed last year, despite those struggles, how good he could be when it counted towards the end of the season. And, and is it going to take that long for him to get there? Has he reached a plateau that he's not, is he not going to get to the point that the Timbers need him to get? These are all questions. Um, but it, yeah, it, when you look at the struggles in the attack, I think <clears throat> you have to recognize that if Diego Valeri was doing better, the attack would be creating more quality chances. Yeah. And also I think, you know, if you talk about a world that Jared is alluding to where Diego Valeri isn't going to be better, how much better would the team be if Sebastian Blanco was in his role and somebody like a Marvin Luria or a Tomas Konechny was in that other role? Obviously, you don't know. We haven't seen enough of those players at that position, at this level, to know for sure. But these are the trade-offs, and this is the opportunity cost by you have by continuing to play Diego Valeri. Me, personally, I think I've seen enough from Diego Valeri through these first four weeks to think that he will eventually come around. But I can't remember if I said it on this show or another one. I keep thinking of Javi Morales. Keep thinking of his last years in Salt Lake, where there wasn't a graceful descent into being a useful player. He went from one of the best number 10s in the league to somebody who, because he just lost a little bit of that step, and he didn't have the athleticism, and he didn't have the positional flexibility too. Javi Morales couldn't play anywhere else. Once he couldn't be a 10, he couldn't play in the league anymore. Where else does Diego Valeri play? And if he has lost a half a step, does he get it back or do you have to start making changes now? I would I would stick with him for for longer, but the performances have to improve. Yeah, I, I mean, I would stick with Diego Valeri for a while. I think to some degree, it, that even while you're sticking with him, I think there are some games that they're going to take opportunities to get him out of the lineup one way or another and test things and just give him a rest without saying that we are no longer building around Diego Valeri. I, I think that's going to be... That would be a big decision for the Timbers to make, make that Diego Valeri is not going to consistently be in the starting lineup anymore um, when, when you're putting out your best team. 
Um, I mean, I, I think he can play more than the 10. I don't, I think he, he's versatile enough that you can sort of decide that you're building your attack around Blanco and still put Valeri in a wide position or depending on the formation as a second forward, as we've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can go that route. Uh, it just does not work as effectively as potentially using someone else on your, on your bench. But when you mentioned connecting Loria, I mean, they haven't been able to work their way into the lineup yet. So is that yeah. really a better option? Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. Diego Valeri is basically a forward at this point anyway. I think the only difference is how prominently is he featured in your transition game and your buildup, or do you play him more as a traditional forward? As far as wide, though, we've seen the Timbers already have trouble defending in wide spaces. Uh, the idea of Diego Valeri tracking fullbacks to me is – uh, the worst version of FIFA I have ever <laughs> thought of. But no, you're right. It's not like it's not like I was kind of implying where it's this immutable thing. We should keep our mind, minds open. Um, keeping our minds open, let's go ahead and go to some more questions here, asking us to jump into somebody else's point of view. Giovanni Savarisi's uh, Caruso asks, what is Gio thinking with that polo for Ebo sub? And then just the general tenor from what we've been seeing in response to our accounts. Uh, why weren't the Timbers making subs and doing more to go for the equalizer late in the game? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if they have the personnel to have been making a ton of subs to go for the equalizer late in the game. I, I mean, if you were going to make subs because players were tired and you wanted to get a fresh legs on the field, what options the Timbers have? They have Milano, they have Espria, they have Polo as sort of that option. I, I mean, I don't think that they're doing anything out of the ordinary. I think the question is whether or not they have the attacking subs to go for a game uh, late in the game. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Uh, just to answer some other questions that are out there, I know people saw T2's lineup on Saturday and got uh, curious as to why a couple of names went there. Marvin Lurie is hurt right now. That's why he didn't play for T2. Foster Langsdorf has been away from the team, was away from this team this weekend for personal reasons. That's why he wasn't in Los Angeles with the team. Uh, so that's why they were in neither of the teams. But, you know, the polo for Obesi sub, Giovanni Savarese said after the game he wanted to see how the team performed with Diego Valeri and Sebastian Blanco up top. I actually think that's a good thing. We talk about how much depth the team has in central midfield. If you can get a formation together that allows Valeri and uh, Blanco to be in attacking roles and not have to be in the midfield like Blanco is having to sacrifice to be right now, uh, that gives you that gives you other options. It was only for like 10 minutes too. And I think what we saw was the back line for Los Angeles started chasing those two guys around a little bit, the two false nines. And by the time Milano came in, I mean, he almost was able, almost was sprung on goal and Granted, that was a lot because two LA defenders collided with each other and then Milano made the wrong choice and tried to cut the ball around the recovering left back. But uh, a lot of that was because the defense was playing too high at that point and Milano was able to beat them with speed. So I think overall that helped. I mean, Polo, Polo for Ibobasi sub, I kind of just look at that as a neutral sub. I, I don't think... Blanco and Valeri as an attacking tandem is any more or less dangerous than a Bobby C and Valeri. So I think that was fine. The other substitutions were pretty attacking. They sacrificed a central defender uh, for, for an attacker by taking Dielna off. Um, and then they put in Konechny for a Guzman. That's an attacking move so, too. So um, I don't, I guess I don't agree that Savaresi wasn't chasing the game, but if somebody thinks that Savaresi should have chased the game earlier and more aggressively, um, that seems like a reasonable conclusion. I guess I would say is it's not like the Timbers were chasing multiple goals, nor were they really that far off the pace before starting making those changes. So I think it's it's both reasonable and worth criticism to think that Savaresi was okay managing things. Um, but let me throw this question at you from Jeff because we are talking about Lucas Milano. Uh, given Milano's lackluster performance, when does Gio decide enough is enough? I mean, 
he can't decide enough is enough unless he has a better option to put in yeah. Milano's place. Um, I haven't seen enough from Milano to think that he is like I just alluded to. I mean that 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 the Timbers have the attacking sub that can come off the bench and make a difference. I, I mean Milano. I think, you know, his pace um, adds something to the attack, but he isn't that sub that's going to come off and come on and get you that goal. I mean, we haven't seen that consistently enough to say that he can be that player. But what other option do the Timbers have? I mean, yes, and I, I think this, the second part of Jeff's question was was Langsdorf in this mix. Yes, um, he's lighting. He's a guy that's lit it up at T2, but for whatever reason, Savarese has said that he doesn't think he's at this level yet, and, and you got to believe whatever he's seeing in training that makes makes those decisions if if Milano's the best option then it seems like it's the option they kind of have to go with if it's him or Spria that just speaks to do the Timbers have enough options there yeah. I mean if somebody wants to write to me in DMs I'll read it on the next show if it's like something I can read in 30 seconds why they feel Foster Langsdorf has proven he should be at MLS level I'll, I'll go ahead and read it because I disagree uh Foster's goal total speaks for itself and it speaks to a very promising player but uh, Foster has a lot of different facets to his game that needs to be worked on. He he knows this. Um, I've talked to him a little bit about this. Foster and I aren't like that, so I haven't really <laughs> been like, hey, here's my report card on you. But he, he's talked ex- exclusively with the coaching staff. And Foster is really good at getting goals to the USL level. And we saw the highlight of the goal that he got at Marlow Field, and that was a very Foster Langsdorf goal. Uh, we're not really seeing a lot of the same kind of things that Jeremy Obobese brings as far as the hold-up play, the defensive play, the ability to bring other people into play. And those are the things that Foster knows that he needs to work on. Um, but if people are seeing something from Foster Langsdorf that makes them think that he's a better option than Lucas Milano, let me know. But that the reasoning behind it isn't, hey, we've seen Lucas play and therefore Foster must be better. Not necessarily true. Um they're, I mean, I, I really hate to you know, put it like this, but these guys do compete in practice every day. And so it must be at least to the f- five people on the coaching staff a little bit inconclusive, right? So I understand, though, the frustration. Lucas Milano is not performing the way that we had hoped when he came back in the middle of the year last year. And until the TAM attacker comes in, he's going to be or not even the Tampa attacker, the designated player attacker comes in, he's going to be in this rotation. And I think that's what people should be asking about, or I am asking about personally, more than um, whether Foster Langsdorf is able to compete. How urgent is it to get that extra attacker in here now? Because maybe as far as the starting 11 is concerned, the team looks good, but as far as the attacking options are concerned, I'm kind of hoping out, holding out hope that Thomas Konechny clicks because we know what we're going to get from Lucas Milano and Dyron Espria. Yeah, and I mean, I, I still think, and I think there's still a lot of debate out there whether we've talked about it, but whether they go with a DP attacker, whether they go elsewhere. Yeah, I th- still absolutely believe they need a DP attacker, and I, I think when you start asking about Lucas Milano, that kind of leads you to the, one of the reasons why. No, I'm I'm actually I'm a hundred percent with you that I still believe the attacker is the right choice, but I a hundred percent believe that this is an interesting debate, and I've heard. People make good arguments for defense, not really good arguments for midfield, to be honest with you. But as far as going out and getting at least like a TAM-level defender... Um, yeah, but you might be able to do both. You might be able to do both. <laughs> my my thing with the defender is basically, as everybody knows, I'm a believer in the talent and defense. But I totally understand if people don't share that opinion. And if you don't, you should want the team to go spend more in defense. To me, though, I look at the defensive options that the team has... And this ties into our next question. How concerned are you that this team currently doesn't have enough quality players to eventually turn the season around? I'm not concerned about the quality in this team at all. I'm concerned about the performances of that quality 
the mix as far as how the team how the team is fitting together and then ultimately whether they're digging themselves too big of a hole so when this talent really does start to shine through in the second half of the season they've created too much of a problem for themselves you know i i am concerned about whether this team has enough quality players to eventually turn things around this season i i, I don't think i've given up on the season I, i'm i'm not hit the panic button yeah. said there's no way it's going to happen but but i do have concerns because as we as we've already talked about you know i'm not sure they have enough attacking talent to to really get the job done this year particularly if diego valeri can't suddenly turn things on if we accept mm. which maybe we don't want to accept this yet but if we accept that the diego valeri we've seen is a diego valeri we're going to get this season I am very concerned about where the attack is going to be at. No, yeah. And given the defensive performance we've seen, I mean, I, I think, like I said earlier, I have some optimism about what a uh, center back pairing of Mabiala and uh, Tuiloma is going to look like and bringing Murray in. I, I think there's some things to be potentially um, in terms of the quality of players there mm-hmm. to feel positive about, but we haven't seen enough of it. And clearly the defense hasn't been good enough. And so if those if it doesn't pan out, if we keep seeing these mistakes, do they have the players to turn around? Should there be another defender there? Maybe. And mm-hmm. they don't have that player. So I I don't know yet. I don't really have an answer to that. Yeah. I, I think it's possible that it could go either way. What are you thinking of when you think turn the season around? When I think turn the season around, I'm kind of thinking of, okay, stop this stop the slide and make the playoffs and then hopefully you know you put yourself in a situation where things can happen but if turn the season around means get back to amongst the best teams in the western conference then some of the scenarios you described i would be concerned about too because it's hard to imagine the teams being uh the timbers being able to compete with seattle kansas city and los angeles uh, lafc if diego valeri isn't diego valeri yeah, I mean, I, I I guess to some degree I'm talking about you know making playoffs, but seven teams make playoffs. Right. But I I don't think it would feel very, no one would feel great about them being the seventh place team coming in or even yeah. the sixth place team coming in. I mean, yes, in a way that would say the season turned around, but it would still be a disappointment. It, and, um, you know, percentages would say that that would their playoff run would end very quickly. Yeah, I kind of think that maybe I was using too low of a standard, but I think that, you know, given the hardship of these first three months of the season, if the Timbers turn it around and finish fourth in the West, I think they can live with that. If they finish sixth or seventh, though, it would be, all right, let's sit down, let's spend a month talking about what went wrong this year and how to prevent it, because you're right, I don't think there is a lot of tolerance for uh, kind of rethinking expectations such that a sixth or seventh place finish is acceptable. Um, sixth or seventh place finish would be a great situation for the San Jose Earthquakes. <laughs> it wasn't so long ago that they were actually in the playoffs a couple years ago. That's yeah, it seems like a long I time. I don't really ago. remember it anymore. <laughs> uh, after a five to nothing loss this weekend to LAFC, one at the, home, <laughs> at home, one the Timbers' performance against LAFC doesn't seem so bad anymore, and two, it seems like San Jose, already a team that seemed like one of the worst teams in the league, is actually getting worse. So. Uh, a version of a question that we got from Twitter. Uh, is anything less than a win Saturday a disappointment for the Timbers? Yes. Anything less than a win is a disappointment. San Jose is the worst team in MLS. There's not really another team that comes close unless the Timbers want to show this weekend that they're that team. Yeah, I, I, I guess I can... No, I, I was about to say I want to be process above results still, but I can't imagine a scenario where the process is good at Avaya Stadium, and the results aren't there. I want, yeah, and I, I to make this other point, I, I, I think that's relevant is that they play four games in April. They play San Jose, weak, weakest team in MLS, 
And then they play three teams that are that rank essentially in, in the top. I guess Dallas is in fourth, but Dallas has 10 points right now. Columbus has 10 points right now. Toronto has nine points right now. Those are all very good point totals. Those no, teams Toronto's, are off to hot starts. And Toronto only has nine points because they've only played three games. Yeah, and there you go. So these teams are off to really good starts. I, yeah. I don't think anyone's going to be feeling good about losing or drawing to San Jose and then saying you're going on the road to three teams that are playing really well right now. Yeah, you're probably right. Uh, those are the three games where you can be a little bit more process over results because yeah. those are going to be difficult places to play. Hopefully Columbus will be a little easier to play at than it was this weekend as Atlanta <laughs> United unfortunately found out a small monsoon there in Ohio. But yeah, I, you're right. Um, within the context of this road trip, this is starting to look like a very important game. Uh, much like we found out that that first game in Colorado turned out to be a very important game as far as getting yeah. a victory. Uh, I don't think a draw is going to be acceptable here. I think you know this this goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the show. The, the Timbers are a team that should be, expect to, every once in a while, go to a place like Dignity Health Center and get three points. They have the talent. They have the pedigree. Galaxy aren't that great. The earthquakes are nowhere near the galaxy's level. And at some point, you have to win these games. Yeah. Kind of period. I mean, I know DC United was terrible on the road last year and still made the playoffs. But generally, you can't be that terrible on the road without having a little bit of that terrible team inside you. And I think at some point, the Timbers have to prove that they aren't a terrible team. And, you know, this weekend went a long way to proving that. But like you said... They got to win in San Jose. Yeah, and then the other side of this, so which I think is an interesting way to look at it, is that Perry says if the Timbers do win, uh, which is what we say they have to do, does it mean anything in terms of the, them turning a corner, in terms of where, where we think they are? Good question, yes. I mean, the team just needs to prove it can win games. And so I don't care if it's against San Jose or any team right now. The ability to go out there and get three points in a Major League Soccer game is meaningful. Is it meaningful in terms of okay can the timbers be a title contender no is it meaningful in terms of what we really know what this team's potential can be no but is it meaningful in terms of achieving a goal which they haven't done this year year accumulating some needed points before june 1st it's very meaningful in my opinion yeah i mean i think the points i mean suddenly four points four points looks a lot better than one point uh, I, I think that's meaningful. I, and I think getting the first win is always important and sort of get that monkey off your back. Um, at the same time, I, I would not come out of this game saying the Timbers are turned a corner, even if they win. Um, I, I just can't feel that way against the San Jose team that's been as bad as they, they've been. It would have to be something that you see in extended in, in the coming weeks afterwards and them not have a drop-off in their next game uh, afterwards. But yeah. They need to win. Yeah, 100% agree. Um, why has San Jose been this bad, and what the, can the Timbers do to exploit them? We've talked a little bit about this, but I want to know what your opinion about this. Yeah, I, I think let's add in. I'm going to add in the second part of this question we have here to it with what formation should the Timbers use as well for mm-hmm. this match. Um, <laughs> San Jose has been bad because they've been terrible on defense, and they have no attack. And I think someday they're going to hope that Chris Wondolowski scores his two goals so they have something exciting to talk about, him breaking Landon Donovan's record. Um, the players they, they brought in, uh, Erickson, Vaco, have not been those forces in the attack they need them to be. There's not enough... They're not doing enough to build chances that that are going to lead to goals. They've only scored twice, and, and they've just made mistake after mistake on defense. I mean, they're... They've been bad all around. And so what I think the Timbers need to do to exploit them is they just need to put in a good performance. The Timbers just need to play well. 
they just I, I think he, this is a game where it's in many ways just important for the Timbers to focus on themselves and their game plan and execute it because if they do I mean, honestly, if they play as well as they did the Galaxy, they should beat San Jose. I, oh, yeah. I, I don't, even though they lost that game, I, I think that performance would be enough to beat San Jose. So I think this is a game where the Timbers focus on themselves. And I do think it's a game where we might see return to the, the 4 uh, four two three one and see how that works. I, I do think a five three two might be a little bit too defensive for a game against a team that you should be able to exploit uh, defensively. And that's coming off a 5-0 loss to LAFC. Yeah, I don't think a 5-3-2 is inherently defensive. Obviously, every formation, it matters how a team plays. Uh, it can be more defensive. I think that even with the personnel that we saw on Sunday, it's not inherently defensive. And I think, like we talked about, the attacking numbers were actually better on Sunday than they were in Cincinnati. Uh, but I completely understand somebody seeing 5-3-2 and wondering if it could end up being more defensive. Eventually, they have to stop playing a 5-3-2 unless it just proves so amazing that you can't go away from it. And as good as the performance was on Sunday, I don't see that happening anytime soon. Regarding San Jose, you know, they have a new coach, Matias Almeida. Uh, has very, very almost, I mean, inscrutable success in South America and Mexico. He's brought in a system from Mexico that requires a lot of individual defensive accountability, a lot of um, almost man-marking elements in it. It just looks like San Jose's not used to playing that. And we talk about the earthquakes and a lot of the names with them are familiar, whether it be uh, Chris Wondolowski, Vaco, uh, Ty, uh, Erickson. Uh, they didn't really make that many changes. Yeah, no, they, they made almost zero. I think they brought in one lone attacker from Spain and that's it. Yeah. Uh, they're the same team that has been, that was poor last year. And it almost seems like a conscious decision that they want to give Almeida half a year with this team, knowing that the expectations aren't high, but they rather than just simply bringing in players for that sake and just kind of saying, well, we're bad. So we have to make changes. They seem to be approaching this. Like, look, we know this is a long process. Assess what you have firsthand. Let's not go off of last year. Tell us who you want to keep. And then we'll build around those players. Well, this is the bad part of that process. It's finding out how bad some of those players are. Uh, what the Timbers can do to exploit them, I think unless San Jose is going to change defensively, this game could look a lot like the Timbers' trip to Colorado last year, where Anthony Hudson elected to take two of his three central defenders in man mark, Sebastian Blanco and Diego Valeri. And once the Timbers figured out that's what they're doing, Blanco and Valeri just basically ran deep into the sides of the field and then left the whole attack open for Samuel Armenteros, who then exploited Danny Wilson. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen again. And not only because Samuel Armenteros is in Italy right now, I think what's what's more likely to happen is that a very smart Timbers team, uh, intelligent and experienced Timbers team, will figure out how to break down an attack or a defense that is going to rely on doing things like that. Maybe San Jose will change a little bit. Losing five to nothing tends to have teams uh, rethinking their perspective. Um, but, you know... We'll have to wait and see until Saturday. Uh, but just to ask kind of a different version of this, Ben asks, from the perspective of a Quakes fan, what gives you hope going <laughs> into this game against the t- against the Timbers? Um, interesting. So let's put ourselves in <laughs> let's put ourselves in a San Jose Earthquakes fan. Uh, Jamie, I'll, I'll let you answer it first. But the first thing that comes to mind is the Timbers just haven't been that good. Yeah, I, I will look at this game and say. San Jose has been losing to some good teams. Let's let's see how they do against a team that's been really weak, and that's sort of what the Timbers are right now. Let's look see how Chris Wondolowski, who is aging but you know is still a proven striker, can do against a team that he has historically dominated against. Mm-hmm. Uh, let, let's see if he can get uh, break some records this weekend. I, I mean, I think that the hope here for Quakes fans, if you want to look from that perspective, is that. The Timbers haven't been good enough, and if they're not good enough this weekend, I mean, any 
professional team. I, I mean, Major League Soccer can beat the Timbers. It, yeah. It's, it, there, there's, this is not a foregone conclusion that Timbers are going to win this game. And then, Ben, I would also say from a Quakes fan point of view, you hit rock bottom last week, and you did so against a very good team. If I were Matias Almeida, I would be saying, look, this is a chance for you guys to prove yourselves, and this is a winnable game. Whether it is truly a winnable game, I, I don't know. It probably depends on how the Timbers play. But if you're not going to be motivated after a loss like that, and if you're not going to see a winless team coming to your home as an opportunity to get yourself into the win column, then you might just want to disband the whole thing now. <laughs> uh, so it's it's not exactly now or never, never, but if you're not going to have some hope going into this one, then sports might not be for you. Let's go to some other questions from Ron. How would you grade the Timbers offseason at this point? I don't know. Pretty, pretty poor. Um, I, I mean, I maybe... Maybe like a C minus or something mm. um, around that. I don't know. Uh, I mean, Maria showed promise. I, I, I think. I, I think that he looked like a guy that could be the real deal there. I, I, I want to see more from him. So, so that potentially was one good move. I, I've been disappointed with Dielna, um, and especially saying goodbye to Ridgewell, who I think was really important to this team from multiple perspectives. And like I've said before, that doesn't mean the Timber it wasn't time for the Timbers to move on from him, but it doesn't mean that his absence, uh, that losing him doesn't make a big difference. Um, anyway, so replacing Ridgewell with Dielna, that, that has not panned out for me at all. Um, it, and I think they've lost leadership because of losing Ridgewell. Loria uh, and Zamrano obviously haven't played, so those are sort of sort of meaningless in that and uh, you can talk about it in the growth of the t2 program but that's sort of meaningless to the first team at this mm-hmm. moment um and and yeah i'm like who else am i missing and they have a goalkeeper who yep. is injured so we have no idea if he's going to pan out or anything and they don't have a dp striker i, I mean saying it i'm almost thinking i'm being uh yeah. <laughs> giving them too high of a grade no I, I, uh maybe even maybe even should be lower i maybe i'm one of those nice teachers it's no. not good no i mean i i agree with you um i think the best thing you well let's go back to december and gavin wilkinson said they were looking to bring in four starting caliber players to compete with yeah. current options one Alia Zivashic hasn't played at all, has been injured. At best, you can say incomplete on that. But also, that was probably the less, least important acquisition. That's a long-term acquisition. Jeff Attenella was the current goalkeeper. A right back, this was the one place that was an obvious hole in the depth chart in that they didn't have anybody besides Zarek Valentin. Uh, I say that it's a little bit early to grade Jorge Morea. Um, the early returns have been interesting. His, reputa- his reputation is solid. But again, I would give him give you an incomplete at best yeah. here. It's one game. Um Everybody wants to give an F for the designated player, attacking player that they want to bring in. But to be honest with you, Gavin Wilkinson said from the beginning that that might not be filled until summer. So I think incomplete is probably the worst you can give there. I think it'd be unfair to give that any other grade. Uh, And then central defense. I think this is where you can't give it incomplete. I also think this was one of the most pressing needs. They needed to have somebody who could be insurance for if Julio Cascante looked like he had some more lessons to learn. He did. If Bill Tuiloma wasn't going to be able to step in immediately. Maybe Bill Tuiloma will, but he wasn't able to step in from the first game of the season. And I think we see sometimes Bill Tuiloma is going to be needed elsewhere in the field. Uh, Claude Dielna, the position on the roster Claude Dielna occupied needed to be somebody that could potentially start a good number of games next to Larry Smaviala. To this point, I don't think we've seen that. And so I wouldn't give them a passing grade for that yet. Of course, there's still... 28 games of the season, 30 games of the season for this to turn around. But quite frankly, if you want to just judge by those four starting caliber players, 
right now, I don't think you can give the offseason a passing grade. I don't think I don't even think the front office would give the offseason a passing grade, but they might say, but we're in the first week of the school semester at this point, or we're in the first month of the school semester, which is totally fair to point out. But it, uh, it's also important to be honest that right now, the grades wouldn't be that good. The first assignments have been come in, and they're they're not passing grades. Um, Patrick, what was the thought in bringing Lucas Milano back? What he brings to the team has been clear since 2015. Wouldn't the high uh, TAM slash designator player spot be better used elsewhere? Yeah, maybe. Um, um, I, I mean, they didn't say they exercised an option on Milano. It said that he was under contract um, when when they when they just announced the status of the roster, I, I can't speak to exactly what it is. Maybe you know better, but um, they, they didn't mention, they usually mention we exercise an option. It did not say that for Lucas Milano. It said he was under contract. They could have sent him on loan. Um, they might've had options there. Uh, I don't think they had any options in which they could have transferred him for, for any meaningful, meaningful money. I, I think they hoped that he showed well last year he could show well again. They had the open space. They still were going to be able to bring in a designated player that wasn't going to stop them and could see if maybe he could build off some of the promise he showed last year. Not in goal scoring, but he did show some promise, I think, in sort of just contributing to the attack when he came off the bench. He has It hasn't looked different, and I think it's it's easy now to look back and say, yeah, that was a complete mistake, and I think there was questions then um, as well. But I don't think I think the key is that they weren't necessarily sacrificing a designated player spot uh, because of this. They thought they'd bring bring in a designated player and Milano would be an addition. Uh, and so I think that's probably contributes to the thought process. At this point, yeah, I would have if the if the option had been there, I would have liked to see another Tam play, uh, Tam forward come in, even as they were still looking for a, a DP. Yeah, this is a player that was under contract whose loan was expiring. So if he doesn't want to go out on loan again, you can't find another place to go out on loan in. You basically have to buy him out or you got to try to find something to do with him. And there was enough positive things that he'd shown in a new position because he was a wing when he was here and he was playing forward in South America to make you think that he could at least come back here and be a valuable option off the bench. And as we know, Lucas Milano is a designated player now, but it's only because the team hasn't signed another designated player. When they do, he'll be bought down by Tam and... Yeah, Patrick even asked, wouldn't the high TAM slash DP spot be better used elsewhere? Maybe, but it's not like the Timbers have a lot of options there. It's not like they can just say goodbye to Lucas Milano unless they want to completely buy him out. And I think that coming into the year, there was reason to believe, based on based on his uh, time in South America, that he they can get more out of him than buying him out. So at least that was the logic. Uh, but I completely agree with the tone here is that you know it's probably worth thinking about that decision-making process. Um, you know, you and I both just walked through it again. To me, it still sounds sound uh, once he's actually on your books, but at the same time, now it doesn't look so good. Sometimes sometimes good processes lead to bad results, unfortunately. And I think with Milano, um, we're still waiting for him to, you know, kind of play to this price tag. Uh, Donna asks, the Timbers passing accuracy looked very poor to me. I assume Donna's alluding to Sunday, except on the one goal. She is alluding to Sunday. Your thoughts? <laughs> Um, I'm trying to go back and see what the actual passing accuracy it was. See if I can get that. I don't know. Why don't you go first? I know Diego Chara completed 90% of his passes. I know Zarek Valentin completed 82.6% of his his passes. I know those were the two highest figures on the team. I, I honestly didn't think the passing accuracy overall looked poor. I thought they were much like previous games. 
key points in which the team couldn't seem to resolve bat- bottlenecks in transition. We're giving the ball up in spaces where you either just want to hold possession or the cost benefit of the risk you're taking at that moment didn't pay off. And I, I agree with you, Donna, that, that it looked poor. Um, I mean, this, this really comes back down to the same thing that we spent four minutes earlier in the show talking about. If they were connecting better through that number 10 spot, through that attacking midfield spot, the whole thing would look better. And to me, when I'm thinking about everybody in the team, I, I'm not really sure that I have a lot of complaints as far as packaging accuracy beyond that. Yeah, it, it was 76%, significantly lower, I think, than the Galaxy. Um, but yeah, I think it's more the, the, the sort of turnovers and moments than it is just the overall passing accuracy that we've seen so far. And I think that is somewhat of a continuation of what we've seen too much this season. Yeah. Um, I guess this next question is probably for me, unless you know differently. Um, <laughs> I'll be interested to know if you do, do know. Uh, David asked, does fan negativity on social media impact the club's morale? Because it seems pretty rough. Have you heard any indications about this affecting players, coaches, janitors, uh, groundskeepers, writers, uh, <laughs> you know, podcasters? I mean, yeah, I, I haven't heard anything. I, I mean, I, I think it's inevitable, you know, that people look at, sometimes look at what's on social media even even players who say that they don't i'm sure they see some of this and and it probably has some impact but yeah they're professional athletes i mean there's nothing that i've seen from social media or heard that makes me think that it's um when they see a bunch of negativity on social media that the club morale suddenly just uh you know they're struggling in the club morale because of that yeah, as far as the players are concerned, most of them do check social media. When they see negative things on there, they don't think any differently about themselves. They think differently about the people who say those things. Uh, they don't go, oh, maybe that person's right. They think, wow, this person went out of their way to be a negative person in the world. That person sucks. Um, they don't go, oh, maybe that person's right. They know before they check social media what they did wrong and what they, what they did right in a game. So um, it really is kind of useless to go after a player. If you, I mean, if you feel better about yourself when you do that, that's fine. Um, the players just look at it and kind of go, that person's a jerk. Uh, but there are other people throughout the whole club that do spend time online. We have social media people. Uh, they're professionals in this. But we have other people in the club who are fans and spend time online. And, yeah, it affects their morale because they – there are a lot of people that work for the team that their whole job comes down to how the, how the customers feel about the team. And so when they see that so many people, it's not even so many people, everybody within the club knows that there's a vocal, anytime on social media, it's always a vocal group minority, right? Um, when people are being kind of ugly about things, it makes their lives a little bit uglier. So I, in that way, I don't think it's any different than anybody else's experiences on social media. Uh, but David, it doesn't affect the coaches who the coaches don't check social media for the most part, or the players who do check social media. It doesn't affect them at all, but it does affect uh, other people in the club. All right, let's have one more Timbers question and move on to Thorns. Um, uh, Chris asks, which current Timbers players that are on loan, the Timbers have a few, uh, will be retained by the club on a permanent let's see. basis? Can I? Th- there are three people on loan. Moreira, Konechny, and Paredes. What about Polo? Isn't Polo still on loan? I don't think... I think... Well, maybe he is, and I'm just... There, there were... I mean, there were... With Polo, there were some metrics he had to hit, I, I believe. Him, and I I'm know. not... Yeah. I'm not really sure exactly Polo's status. Yeah, I think Polo's option vested, but I'm not... To be honest with you, unless I call Gavin let's, Wilkinson right let's now. Let's start with the three, then. Yes. Let's go with the three. All right. So we know Moreira is on loan. Um, I mean... Again, I just think it's too soon with him. But as far as I, I will say, you know, in the month that he was here and he didn't play, 
uh, the guy was really impressive just from a temperament standpoint. Uh, just somebody that, you know, he's an older person. He knows why he's here. He knows the situation he's in, and he's been very positive. So at least away from the field, it's all been good so far. And then hopefully on the field, um, he gives the team reason to keep him. Or if not, you know, I don't even know why I said hopefully there. But it'll come down to play on the field. There's nothing off the field there. Um, Christian Paredes, let me throw that one to you. We have over a year of Christian Paredes. We know he's still super young, 20 years old. We know he's got a Paraguayan international pedigree. We know he's on loan from America. Um, what are you thinking with him right now? Yeah, I think it's still maybe with him, but I still think it for him it's probably more leaning to yes, assuming mm-hmm. the, the money sort of works out, the, the financials work out because of how young he is and, and given that he has played a, a decent amount and done well. I think that's a player, given what he's done with the Timbers, that the team, all of this depends on what happens this year. But the team at this point, if if they had to make that decision today, would say, yeah, we can potentially build on this guy for the future. We can take that risk. Unless, for whatever reason, the transfer fee, the money just didn't made it so it didn't make sense. Yeah, I'm still very high on Christian Paredes, but we're really early in the process with him probably. So uh, his year, his first year in Portland was kind of stunted by some things that he has recently talked about more, or not recently, a couple months ago, talked about more. And from what we've seen this year, I've seen positives. I think the the bigger question for me is how do you get that guy more playing time? Because he's the one guy on the team. People are always talking about why the Timbers aren't giving young players more playing time. He's a young player that's ready to play now. So I would like to see him continue to get more minutes in the starting lineup. Uh, the third person is Thomas Konechny. I think it's fair to say that he hasn't shown enough to stay as yeah. of now. And I think it's also fair to say that he has time to prove it. I will say he continues to be impressive in training. This is why he has made two substitute appearances off the bench. And I will, I mean, I won't continue to say this. I will say this. That's, that has to translate to the field at some point, or it doesn't really matter. I mean, over the course of this year I've been on the show, I think it has been helpful to say who's been performing in training to explain the decisions the coaching staff makes. But ultimately, when we're talking about retaining players, what their futures are, they have to perform in the minutes they get. Yeah. And Konechny only has 17 minutes this year. Yeah. Konechny, if they had to make that decision a day, would be gone. Um, if he has to be a DP, I'm not sure if they – I think they were renegotiating that deal in the offseason, so I don't know what it looks like now. Before, when they brought him in, it was that he was going to potentially be a designated player when they got to that point. Yeah. Definitely hasn't been anywhere near there. Um, he'd have to do a lot more to get towards that, but – uh, yeah, he has a lot to prove to be retained because right now, uh, if they had to make that decision, they'd be gone. Hmm. Jamie, let's talk about the Thorns. Ugh, let's see if we can not fall into the trap of taking preseason results too seriously. <laughs> but at the same time, we have had two Thorns games since our last recording. And I mean, it's just too tempting to talk about the Thorns because... It's been so long since we've been able to have a serious conversation about the Thorns. At the very least, we can ask answer some people's questions. But first, yeah. questions for ourselves. What are our takeaways from the tournament? Uh, we really only saw, well, we never saw the first team together. The closest semblance of it we got was last Sunday's game against the Red Stars, a 2-1 to one victory. They were still missing Haley Rosso. They were still missing Caitlin yeah. Ford. No Adriana French. Uh, no Emily Menges. But from that game, what did you think? I mean, I thought they could be better, but I, I think I, I think in the you know in the Red Stars game, it, I think I said this last week too that they were getting in good spots and they were just not finishing. So the attack to me seemed in a good position. I thought the defense did pretty well. I I'm not really concerned about what this team's going to look like when they're at full strength. I think I think we know exactly what this team's going to look like at full at completely full strength. Now seeing Emily Mangus pick up an injury that that starts 
to make you feel, oh, God, is, gosh, is this last year all over again? Um, where they had all these injuries early in the year that totally changed what that lineup looks like. Mm-hmm. And given that they're going to be losing so many players, you'd like to see them at full strength when they can be. Um, so I think that's a little bit of a concern. But I I know what we're going to get from this team full strength. I think there was some promise, in, especially in certain players' performances, and when they weren't, when they lost their U.S. national team players uh, this week. Um, some other players had a chance to step in. Um, which we can talk more about. Some people have asked that already, but, you know, Emily Ogle, uh, I think, was exciting. Uh, Gabby Seiler, I, I think, was exciting. Th- these are some players, that draft picks, that I think are probably going to end up with contracts and could play real roles. Yeah, Emily Ogle was good from set pieces, but and I think people have exaggerated that a little bit, to be honest with you. Um, she was really good from dead balls, be it corner kicks or the free kick that she put off the post. Overall, in that game against the U23s, the midfield got kind of overrun, though. And, I mean, I don't blame that on Emily Ogle at all. That midfield was kind of uh, a couple of trialists and Emily Ogle. And they were playing against some of the most athletic young players in the country. Uh, but Gabby Seiler, I think her contributions have been obvious. Uh, I think she's played the most minutes of any field player during this tournament. Her composure on the ball has been great. Uh, her intelligence, as far as being able to replay and stay organized, has been great. Uh, I think that she has put herself in position to compete for that spot next to Emily Sonnet on the 14th in Orlando, provided that uh, Emily Menges isn't healthy enough to go there. At the same time, that's going to be a contest between her and Elizabeth Ball. And if Catherine Reynolds is healthy, she'll be in that conversation too. So uh, there's there's a lot there. Uh, I think overall from the preseason tournament, the one thing that I took away is how very preseason-y it was. And, you know, Mark Parsons always talks about how these first games of the NWSL season are just chaos because the teams are so athletic and so fast, but they don't have their uh, their rotations worked out in attack and they don't really know what they're doing yet as far as their attacking identity. And I, if this last week was any indication, that first game in Orlando is going to be more chaos than before because over the course of this week of at Merlot, the presses, the defenses were able to dominate and the attacks weren't able to do much. I agree with you that particularly the space behind the Red Stars defense, the, the Thorns did a great job of attacking that in the first half of that game. And then the second half, Julie Ertz is just pushing people around and being Julie Ertz and it starts to look like a, a NWSL slugfest. And that's kind of how the next two games played out. Uh, let's fast forward to some more specific questions. Ben asks, uh, if I missed all the preseason action, which observations do you have about any new or unique pattern shifts or concepts that the team was trying out? I don't know. I mean, maybe you have a better answer to this. I, I think it was more about getting different personnel in there and, and sort of testing the chemistry out between those players and, and seeing just how those players looked and, and some in, in different positions, as we mentioned, Siler, um, different positions than maybe they came in. in. Um, I didn't see a real concepts that uh, we were looking at and thinking, this is a new concept that Mark Parsons is going to have this year that, that's different than before. Yeah, I think that the new things that I've spotted are kind of evolutions, uh, more responses to, I think, how uh, either the Thorns have evolved or how teams played them last year. I think, one, the Thorns started last year in a 5-3-2 formation where they just pressed pressed other teams into the ground. And I think what we saw this last week was a very controlled form of pressing now. Uh, it's much more restrained, much more organized, much more concerned about preventing teams to play from playing through the middle and keeping them locked into one side. Those aren't unique concepts by any stretch of the imagination, but the prioritization of those as opposed to just running at people and forcing them to play long balls uh, has changed a little bit to me. And then also, you know, I, I see people complain about this sometimes, and I, I kind of don't understand this criticism about the, the thorns. They only build down their left-hand side. Guess where Tobin Heath is? 
if you have Tobin Heath, you're going to use Tobin Heath. The Thorns are going to be a left-sided team. And every team in the NWSL knows that, and it's not going to change. So how the, t- the Thorns attack down that side has to continuously be evolving. And I would guess I would say to people, uh, look at how early midfielders are rotating over to that side. Look at the type of runs that Megan Klingenberg is making. Look at the type of balls that are being played in from that side and the type of runs that are being made from the weak side to utilize space that other teams are leaving. Like when you have somebody like Tobin Heath, you're going to use her all all that you possibly can and that's not going to change but the little things that people can do off the ball in those situations i think uh become interesting so ben that's that's what i would encourage people to look for uh come the 14th in orlando jamie freckled asks well freckled said i'm excited for Britt eckerstrom to get minutes in goal assuming that adriana french is part of the world cup roster fingers crossed who else are you excited for to get more minutes than usual slash show their skills during the world cup absences or who else do you hope to see more of because she's an exciting prospect? Why don't you talk about Emily Ogle a little bit more? Because I disagreed a little bit with how good she was, <laughs> but uh, I certainly am wrong about more things than I am right. What's What stood out to you about her? I mean, you definitely touched on the, the dead ball uh, situation. And I, I think that I was excited about that maybe a little bit more than you were just because I, they're going when Tobin Heat's not there, um, who is going to be taking those kicks for them and who's going to be on the field? I mean, if they have, she looked like someone that could step in and be an effective option on free kicks and create goals and create chances. And she's a draft pick they, they got sort of a little bit later in the draft, um, not necessarily someone that was expected to come and step immediately in, but I, I thought she held her own out there in terms of her performance in the midfield. And then to be able to have that sort of weapon when you're missing a Tobin Heath, I, I think that could be really exciting for their attack. Uh, Freckles, for me... I, kinda, I think I talked about this a little bit last week about how one of my fa- secret favorite Thorns players was going to be discovered last week. And I know that um, Jamie knows about this player, but uh, Simone Charlie started at the number nine against the U23s. I, I think because the Thorns couldn't really get a grasp of that game in the midfield, there really wasn't much that the fans could see from Charlie. Um, I think that she's going to have a part to play this year. I don't know how much of a part she's going to play. Certainly during the World Cup time, I think she's going to get chances. I think we saw early in that game there was a ball that was played in behind and Charlie just exploded and the keeper for the U23s had to come far out of her area to to play that ball. Um, There's a level of athleticism that Simone Charlie has that transcends the kind of athleticism that we usually see in soccer players. And she's worked very hard over the last year plus to refine the soccer playing part of her athletic profile. Uh, I'm very excited to see how uh, how that hard work either pays off or doesn't pay off when she gets more time against NWSL competition. Um, Kelly asks a related question. The possibility of Thorns non-roster invitees slash draftees winning roster spots. Let's go ahead and lump, uh, lump this in with the next question. Gabby Seiler and Madison Pogart looked good, which is great for World Cup defense offices, but who's going to score those goals without? Ford, Horan, Sink, Heath, Rosso, etc. The reason I lump those together is Madison Pogart is the standout non-roster invitee at this point, seeing action in a couple games. And at left back, looking really good. Yeah. Um, I, I, okay, I guess I would take these in two parts because um, that doesn't really speak to who's going to score the goals. But, yeah, Pogart. And I think, like you've said, I, even though she didn't show it there, uh, I, I think Simone Charlie is obviously someone that's competing for a roster spot. Um, Gabby Seiler, I absolutely expect Gabby Seiler to be on this roster. Um, and Emily Ogle, I think, is going to be competing for one of those spots as well. Sandra Yu isn't in camp yet, so I don't think she's really in that mix. She's obviously a player that was the Thorns were excited about. 
Um, but it, it seems like there's some personal issues, a small injury, things that are being worked out. I don't, at this point, it's unclear when she's coming to camp. So kind of, I think the four, I think I mentioned four players, I, I think are, are the players we could see on the roster. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, it's pretty safe to assume Gabby Seiler is going to be here this year. Talked to her at length last week for some stuff that we have coming up. Uh, just a great story. I think the thing is with her is that through one week, we've seen her in one position and it's a position she's never played before central defense. I think it's more likely as people start getting healthy that people are going to see her in midfield, which obviously there there's a need for some depth there. At least there's one or two options that have to emerge because during the World Cup, Dagny Brynjardsdottir is probably going to be there. Celeste Bure is going to be there. And then who? Angela Salem, perhaps. Angela Salem is currently away finishing up her grad school stuff. She'll be back soon. Uh, but Gabby Seiler is going to be an option there too. And it's kind of weird. All last year, we, we got these questions about asking about players, and I always say, hey, Sandra, you looks good. Sandra, you looks good. I can't say anything about Gabby Seiler because she's not here. Right now, Gabby Seiler looks good. Gabby <laughs> Seiler looks good. I can't say anything about Sandra Yu because she's not here, but yeah, I don't know when Sandra Yu is going to be back. But to get to Kelly's uh, second question, and of course, want to know your feelings about this, I, I guess this question has come up for a year now. People projecting into the next year, wondering who's going to score goals. I mean, the team's going to have Anderson Nagoshevich. They're going to have Mitch Purse, who has never scored an NWSL goal, but I think we all recognize she has a certain level of talent. Um, they have other players like Simone Charlie and uh, Mallory Weber. Tyler Lucy is, has looked pretty good during the times that she has, and Tyler Lucy has always found a way to score goals in the NWSL. I don't know if she's going to continue to, but look, there are no easy answers for these questions. Who's going to score a goal for the Seattle Reign? They're going to be relying on Darian Jenkins and... Shea Groom. I mean, almost any team in this league that has a valuable goal scorer, that goal scorer is going to be gone in June. So uh, these are good questions to ask, but they're also not questions that are unique to the Thorns. And in some ways, the Thorns actually have more options than other, other teams have. Having a player like Anastasia Nagoshevich around or Dagny Brynjardsdottir has scored goals in this league too. So it's a concern, but I mean, a lot of other teams have major concerns in this area too. Anna Sern Gorchevich, Dagny Brynjusadr, Mitch Purse, I, I think are the three that I look to immediately as, as sort of veteran attacking players that can come back. And, I, and particularly Anna Sern Gorchevich, I think is going to be called upon to play a much bigger role in the attack uh, during that World Cup app since I wrote an article about it, I, I think a week or two ago. Um, I, I think some of these other players we mentioned, um, Mallory Weber might score a few goals, Tyler Lucy might score a few goals, maybe, maybe Simone Charlie comes onto the roster and, and shows something uh, and gets a goal or two. Uh, but the three that I pointed out, th- those players are all proven NWSL players that are dangerous in the attack, and, and they're going to have to uh, step up. I, I think the Thorns are going to rely on them a little bit to find goals th- through them. Yeah, I think people are going to get really aggravated with me for many reasons on this podcast, but I'm going to continue to downplay that World Cup time. It is going to provide challenges for every team, both during the World Cup and after the World Cup. But this season is going to be defined by how each team in this league responds to those challenges. You're going to have very good teams that are in 6th or 7th place in this league after the World Cup. You're going to have teams that do better than expected. And then you're going to have some teams, maybe like a Houston Dash, that'll sit 2nd or 3rd in the league before, before the end of the season and have to hold that spot. But this league isn't going to be decided by the World Cup. And I think the Thorns have enough depth to survive that. I think almost every team in this league have enough depth to survive it. But it's still going to be a matter of dealing with the challenges that are there in the middle of July. Uh, Let's go to Anissa. Did you think Olivia Moultrie had an impact during her time on the field for the Thorns? For people that don't know, she played 45 minutes in the second half against the U23s last Wednesday. Almost 45. 
I think she came off slightly early. She played 44 minutes and about 30 seconds. Good. We're, we're being accurate as journalists today. No. Okay. I, I, I think... I mean, technically, she was never subbed off, so she played more than yes. she played the whole time, um, if we want to be accurate. <laughs> Let's get to their question. Um, no, not really. I, I didn't think she had much of an impact. I, I didn't think she got on the ball that often. I, I also think she held her own when she did get on the ball and, and looked like she, she didn't look like she didn't belong out there. But she's 13. I don't think, I don't think she was spectacular and you think she's the next uh, superstar in the NWSL, but she shouldn't be. She's 13. And the fact that she was holding her own out there with professionals, I think is pretty impressive. Yeah. I think that Olivia Moultrie didn't take over the game. I didn't think she make, made any mistakes either. Very tight in possession, making the right choices. Uh, wasn't creating chances or anything, but she was also playing against players that are nine years older than her and with some players on the field were double her age. Yeah. Uh, the mere fact that she could compete at that level as a 13-year-old is both noteworthy and, I mean, not to continue saying stuff like this, ultimately not really relevant to what the Thorns are going to be doing over the next four and a half years. Uh, I just want to say that because uh, I think it's absolutely something we should be talking about. If somebody plays in one of these games, we should talk about it. But we do still get questions on Twitter from people wondering, you know, why is she even here if she can't play games? Or when is she going to be able to play games? She can't sign a pro contract until she's 18. She's here because training with the Thorns is a good opportunity for both her and the Thorns. Uh, but ultimately, it's, she's, for the next four and a half years, going to be a training player. Yeah. So that's the that's kind of like the context on Olivia Moultrie, um, who I, I still am extremely excited to see what her journey is going to be like just beyond just a soccer player level. Like for a 13 year old to one, have worked hard enough to give herself these opportunities and two, actually elect to take them. Uh, it entails a level of risk and reward and potential upsides and downsides that we haven't even imagined. And it'll be interesting to just periodically see where Olivia Moultrie yeah. is. Uh, more listener questions from Donna. How will we be able to watch the Thorns play this season? Can you please update us on that? Is it Yahoo streaming? Well, we don't have official word on this, but as with most things in WSL, we kind of know before things become official, just like we kind of know when players are signed to contracts, even though they don't get confirmed, or uh, we know when that schedules are eventually going to be out, even though they're out much, much later. I mean, at this point, we kind of know that it's going to be on Yahoo Streaming, but we don't know for sure. No, we, we do. Amanda yeah. Duffy said it's going to be yeah, on Yahoo Streaming. Exactly. We just haven't gotten the schedule and the actual release. We don't know what it's going to look like. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the thing. I've always in the NWSL, and I think this is the NWSL League's offices part, there's always this level of kind of healthy paranoia because they, there's never like the nice bow on the message. And so, you know, it's it's been apparent for some time that Yahoo was going to be streaming these games, Yahoo was going to be the streaming service, but there there hasn't been the all-out push to say it. So much like every January when people start really stressing about when the schedule is going to come, it's like, well, it's going to come, but also you understand why they're stressing about it because it's not coming yeah. as, as quickly as usual. And in this case, the news is has come, but it's not coming in the way that's making people feel reassured about the message. Yeah, it's going to be on Yahoo. That's what the NWSO said. I, there needs to be more details out there, and there should be more advertising just so fans know out there right now. Um, in addition, the NWSL, last time Amanda talked, said even though they were getting rid of the lifetime deal, they were confident they were going to get a national TV partner, and they were confident it was going to be for the season. And uh, they, I feel like I asked that question, do you think you're going to get them by the start of the season? And Amanda Duffy said... Basically, that that was the goal. Doesn't look like it's going to happen. Yeah, I highly doubt that they're going to have a national TV partner at the beginning of the season. And so I think that worry that 
I initially saw it when I saw the Lifetime um, announcement is to some degree warranted. We'll see how it plays out throughout the entire season. Yeah. Um, but at some point, the NWSL is going to have to release some details on how the Yahoo streaming is going to work. And I, I don't think I would be shocked if they end up being on national TV on day one. It's extremely frustrating, Donna. But to be honest with you, and I think you're probably in this situation too, because from what I know about you, you've been a fan of this league from day one. And I know you've supported women's sports from long before this. This isn't something that's necessarily, I think, a sign of the league going backwards in any way, but it is a sign that the league's not moving forward as quickly as it could. Yeah. And you would like to think after seven plus years, uh, these things could kind of should get solved, um, but they haven't. I don't think the league is any worse position than it was this year, last year or two years ago or anything like that. But maybe that only adds to the frustration because maybe it should be in a better position. Maybe we shouldn't have to say things like, I don't think the league is in any worse position. <laughs> so what kind of standard is that for a league that's supposed to be growing? Uh, I, From the fans' point of view, I would be very, very frustrated that these same feelings come up at the same point of the calendar every year. I would also encourage everybody to concentrate on the things that we're here for most the games the players those storylines these little things ultimately they are worth discussing especially if you didn't know for, the, for sure that the streaming deal was finalized and it's going to be on yahoo streaming but ultimately we do have a league in place we're going to have these games and um hopefully soon in two weeks we can actually concentrate on that and uh, a lot of these questions will be answered uh, last question from donna uh and then we'll move on to predictions it is uh I don't have an answer to this, so maybe you have a better sense. But any idea on how many games the U.S. women's national team players will be playing for the Thorns pre-World Cup? Uh, is Ellis taking them starting in May? I, I didn't get an answer from Mark Parsons when I've asked about this. I don't know if you have any. I don't think anybody knows. All right. Um, yeah, I think everybody is planning for them to be gone in May. But who knows? Maybe there'll be word coming in the next couple of weeks that they won't be gone until May 7th or May 10th. Uh, but yeah. I think every single person that has a women's national team player on their roster is anticipating they'll be gone from May. And then given how far the U.S. is likely to go in the tournament and come back early to mid-July. All right, moving on to predictions. We don't have Thorns to predict. We'll have that in a few weeks. But we do have Timbers at San Jose. Uh, and I, for the first time this season, I believe, <laughs> I'm going to predict a win. I'm going to predict a 2-0 win. This is big for you because the Earthquakes are your team. Everybody knows this. Everybody <laughs> talks about it every time. I mean, where are you going to be this weekend? San Jose. Because, uh-huh. yeah, you have season tickets there. You go there <laughs> all the time. I would, too. I mean, I would. your parents are lovely people. I would make every excuse possible to go down and see them. My, my <laughs> parents, I think, are more... My parents wear, like, timber jerseys a game. I have to tell them I'm a journalist and that, you know, I, I don't have a rooting interest. Mm-hmm. They since I started covering the team. Don't worry. Like, one day the quakes will be shivers. better, and you can confess to your fandom. <laughs> sure. You don't have to. You don't have to keep hiding it. I'm not. I'm not sure. Given in my analysis of the earthquakes, how how embraced I would be by the the fans down there. Mm. Well, it's not the worst thing in the world to be not embraced <laughs> by certain parts of the San Jose fandom. But you are predicting a victory here. I am a two-zero win. I a victory and a clean sheet. Yeah, I I think that San Jose. I mean, San Jose scored two goals so far this season. I, I don't think I'm going out on too much of a limb. Um, the Timbers are better than San Jose. They should win this game, and if they don't, I think that's going to be a major issue. Well, you might be get, being a little bit risky, not only predicting the win, which I agree with, but also predicting a clean sheet, too. That's an interesting kind of uh, parlay there. Uh, I, I feel like I'm being a little bit risky here, too. I feel like for the last couple of weeks, we've been focusing on this player's performance and wondering when it might turn around. Well, 
it's going to turn around on Saturday. Have a really good feeling. Maybe it's me remembering what he did last year at Avaya Stadium where late heroics helped deliver three points for the Timbers. But I'm going with Diego Valeri to score a goal and an assist. Um, and partly because he's due and partly because I really do uh, believe what I said during the show, even though I think it's undeniable that he has struggled during the first month of the season. I still think there's a there's a player in there that we all believe is there, that we all hope is there. Um, I've seen enough of it during the games to know that he just seen, his timing just seems to be a little bit off. Um, I think I still see the commitment there. It's going to come around at some point. And if not against San Jose, then who? <laughs> when, yeah. All right. Uh, fantasy update. Uh, in third place, we have um, Real Lasico. That's Perez. In second place, we have Mateo FC. That's O'Neal. And in first place, we have what's definition? There may have been, <laughs> there dot, may dot, have been a little bit cut off there, yeah. um, but that's Xavier. Uh, hopefully, we'll get the full name next time around. Uh, and... That's all for this week. So uh, you can find us every week on Oregon Live, Timbers.com, and Stumptown Footy. You can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. And until next week, take care. <laughs>